right, let's take God's holy word and let's turn to the book of 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2, as we continue to think about the character of public prayer. It's more about the character of the ones that are to lead us in prayer. But you'll see that when we get to it here in just a moment. Let's begin reading at verse 1 of chapter 2, and then we'll read down to verse 8, and then let's pray together one more time. So 1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, and telling the truth, I'm not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father in heaven, Hallowed be your name. You are holy and you are worthy of our praise, our worship, and the dedication of our lives in every facet to you. Lord, we come as weak creatures in need of help. And so we come to the throne of grace to find help in time of need. O oh Lord, we pray today that you would take the words that we have read together and as we continue to think about them and meditate upon them and dissect them together, Lord, you would, you would be pleased to draw near to our minds and our hearts and our souls today to draw us closer to you, to draw us closer to one another, Lord, to work in our lives what we need, what this text is calling for, what you are calling for through this text by the power of your Holy Spirit. So help us in our understanding and help us in our application. And God, we pray that if there's one here that does not know you as a regenerated, blood-bought disciple, we pray that you would call them and draw them and convict them, woo them with your holy love that they may repent and turn away from rebellion and sin and trust in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. For his name and in his name, we pray these things. Amen. Amen. 
So clearly, as we start this passage, we're thinking about prayer. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. He has in mind here the prayer ministry of the local church, a, a ministry of prayer that supports the universal mission of the church to take the gospel to the nations of the world. Our prayer ministry should not be limited to the physical ailments of those who are at the current gathering and those people that they know that have some kind of physical ailment. We should pray for those things, and God is so sovereign over those things as well. But the scope of the praying in this passage is for the salvation of the lost from all people all over the world. That is, prayer that is in support of God's command to take the gospel to the world. As we have learned thus far in this letter, Paul is concerned to remind Timothy the importance of sound doctrine and holy living and how these things go together in an inseparable way. At the heart of this particular passage, we find again the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 4. Speaking of, at the end of verse 3, calling God the Savior, in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people from all places in the world to be saved and come to the full knowledge of the truth. The heart of God's truth and the heart of God's truth for the salvation of sinners and at the heart of God's truth for spiritual development and maturity is the reality that God is a Savior. If you look at verses 5 and 6, he goes on to state that there is only one God and creator of all things, and there's only one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for sinners. There is only one way to God, and that is through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is nothing less than the redeeming grace of God, the Redeemer paying the price necessary to release those that are held captive by sin, releasing them from the coming judgment of God. The way that God does this is through the preaching of the gospel, calling sinners everywhere to repent and turn away from unbelief and rebellion against their creator God and to turn in faith, trusting and believing upon the Lord Jesus Christ for the salvation of their souls, for the forgiveness of their sins and for the gift of eternal life. And so the work of redeeming grace, as you see at the end of verse 6, must be proclaimed this doesn't happen just uh, in some kind of a mechanical way where Jesus died on the cross and it happens in, um, throughout the uh, history of humanity without there being any other means applied. But no, as we see at the end of verse 6, the work of redeeming grace, the work of the cross of Calvary, the, the work that Jesus accomplished when he died on the cross must be proclaimed to the people who will be saved. They have to hear it. 
Faith comes by hearing, Romans chapter 10 and verse 17, and hearing through the word of Christ. And so Paul reminds him at the end of verse 6 that this was the testimony given at the proper time. This is the message given at this point in redemptive history because of the work of Jesus of Nazareth the work that he accomplished, the redeeming work, the atoning work that he accomplished as he gave himself on the cross for sinners. And so Paul says that the testimony must be proclaimed, and it is at this moment in verse 7 that he reminds Timothy and the church and us this morning of the significance and importance of his own unique call and authority given to him by God, given to him directly by the Lord Jesus Christ. This becomes clear as we read verse 7, and he says, For this I was appointed a preacher. For what? For the testimony given at the opportune and the divinely appointed time. The testimony of the gospel of the accomplishment of Jesus on the cross is to be proclaimed, and he says, for this purpose, I was appointed, I was called, I was commissioned to be a herald, a preacher, and an apostle. One sent out specifically and uniquely from Christ to establish Christian doctrine and practice for local churches. I'm a preacher a kerux, a herald. I am an apostle, one sent with divine apostolic authority. And he goes on to say, a teacher of the Gentiles, of the nations. In what? In faith and truth. He's concerned with the truth of the gospel and all of the truths in the scriptures that are attached to the gospel. And so, this is the context that gets us to verse 8, which is the heart of our message this morning. I desire then, as the apostle appointed by Christ, I desire then that in every place men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. The establishment of the particulars of the worship services of local churches, in this particular case, the church in Ephesus, the apostles uniquely had that authority given to them by Jesus. No one else has that kind of authority but them. I don't have that kind of authority. We as a local church do not determine how we are to approach God in worship but we approach God and worship the way that he has dictated and told us to approach him in worship through his apostles that is recorded for us in the New Testament scriptures. And so here he has in mind the character of the men who are going to lead in congregational prayer. The who and the with what character should lead the congregation in their prayer ministry for the nations of the world, focusing in on the gospel ministry of the church. No matter what the dividing wall is, 
whatever the dividing issue may be between brother and brother, we must remember the center of our calling and our mission of who we are in Christ and whose we are in Christ. He reminds us of this in the broader context that we looked at above, that there is one human race. There is one God, one Savior, one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all which is the testimony given at the proper time, which is to be proclaimed into all the world for the salvation of sinners. What is the kind of people that the gospel produces through the power of God? What are the kinds of people that the gospel produces by the power of God. This is the practical application and outworking of the gospel. The gospel goes into a community. There is a herald who stands for the first time to proclaim the glorious truth of God in Christ and all that he is and all that he has accomplished in the person of Jesus. The power of the Holy Spirit attending that message brings forth fruit unto salvation among the people who hear they then in turn are gathered to the local churches to be discipled and to be taught and trained in everything that Jesus, the King, has commanded us. And this gospel ministry at work produces a certain kind of character within the context of these people. These kingdom individuals have a certain kind of kingdom character. They reflect the character of the King. And we know that he has in mind character here as we remind you of these verses. Beginning in verse 8, he addresses the men of the church. Then in verses 9 to 15, he addresses the women of the church. And you'll see when we get there, although most people focus on the fact that he says that he does not permit a woman to preach or to exercise authority within the context of the local church, but if we go and look here more broadly as we read these verses, and we will, we'll notice that really what he has in mind is the proper character of a woman who professes godliness through the gospel work of Christ on the cross for them. And then in chapter 3, beginning in verses 1 down to verse 7, you have the qualifications and the characteristics of those who are called to be the elders of the church. Those who are called to be the pastors of the church, the overseers, dealing with their character. Look at it in verse 1 of chapter 3. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone desires the office of a bishop, an overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The very first thing he says has to do with the man's character. And then in verses 8 to 13, he addresses the deacons, those who are serving the body life of the church in a tangible way to facilitate the ministry of the word and prayer of that local church. These deacons also are called to have a certain kind of kingdom character, all having to do with their godliness, 
all having to do with asking the question, what does gospel faithfulness look like? What does it look like for the men of the church to be gospel faithful? What does it look like for the women in the church to be gospel faithful? What does it look like in the church when you have leaders, elders, when you have pastors who lead them in gospel faithfulness and deacons? So that is where we're headed. But in verse 8, he, he wants us to first of all deal with those who raising their hands to God as, as it is in this offering up to God, praise and worship and prayers and petition to God, what is the character of the ones that lead us in public prayer? Three characteristics of the men leading in congregational prayer. Number one, they are characterized by holy living. Now, we've looked at this as a church, so some of you that are here for the first time will have to go back if you want to listen to a more in-depth and broader biblical um, defense of, the, of this concept. But if you look here, he says that they pray lifting holy hands. And this is simply one part of the body as a reference to the whole body. The hands that do things, right? Lifting up hands that are attached to a body that lives a life in practical terms out every day, Monday through Sunday, that are consecrated to God, that are dedicated to God, that are, in this case, unstained by unrepentant sin. He's not lifting up his hands, stained with sin to God in prayer, but he is living a life, as 1 John teaches Christians, that is a life of repentance and faith, constantly acknowledging and confessing his faults and sins to God and others so that he may constantly have that daily cleansing so that he has the confidence to approach God in prayer that he will be heard as a representative of that local body of believers. So when we come to God in worship, when we offer to God the service of our lives for the gospel, coming to God in prayer, men are viewed here as lifting up their hands that are a part of a life that is set apart to God in truth, in truth and reality. Another way to say it is these men are seeking personal godliness, holiness unto the Lord, in the context and the devotion of the totality of their life. That's what they're doing. They're not coming on Sunday to raise up a prayer that's the first of the week and the last of the week. They're not coming to the worship service out of a life that has been lived mainly in worldliness and sensuality throughout the week only to come as the leader of the congregation in the approach of the throne of grace. And beloved, this is just a representation here and a call for the men to be leaders of what every Christian is called to be and to do. Every Christian. And you notice, beloved, that I did not say perfectly. 
He's not talking about sinless perfection, but a life of repentance and faith, a life that is dedicated to holiness unto the Lord and the fight for that personal holiness. The writer of the book of Hebrews says, without which no one will see the Lord. These are brothers, in other words, who are in the fight for this godliness and holiness unto the Lord, for God's own glory, for the good of the gospel, for the advancement of the gospel ministry of the local church. These are men who understand the need to seek the Lord personally and daily. They remember the need to pursue holy living and sound doctrine simultaneously. Holy living and sound doctrine. Number two, also in verse 8, the second characteristic is that they are characterized by peace and without wrath. Lifting up holy hands without wrath. And he goes on to say, quarreling. These two go together, anger or quarreling, wrath and quarreling. These two ideas go together, but we will separate them for our purposes here this morning. First, we know that this peace must be between us and God before we can ever expect it to go between us and one another as humans and as brothers and sisters in Christ. But he does have in mind here not so much the vertical aspect of peace, but the horizontal. He's thinking mainly in this text and in this context of brothers in the church, not having this anger, not having this wrath, but being at peace with one another. In other words, without dispute, without debate, without anger and hostility. And so we thought about this last week, that if we have disunity within the body of Christ, we cannot just sweep it as it were under the cosmic rug and go on in our dedication to God. But we must deal with this issue. We must take care of the disunity that arises from time to time within the body of Christ. Beloved, it's very simple. Do not make the mistake of thinking that you can go on in your personal life and have this great ministry for God while you harbor anger towards your brother in your heart. Can't do it. You can't do it. God is going to call us again and again to exemplify the maturity and the humility that Jesus taught his disciples. Notice, though, that in the context of these words, the problem here is not true doctrine. <laughs> it's not doctrine that divides in this particular text, but it is something else. It is the character of pride within the men or the women of the church that keeps them from forgiving and from loving and from showing compassion and preference to one another. Unity, as we learned last week, within the body of Christ, the church, is founded upon the truth and can never be separated from it. 
There is no Christian unity without biblical truth. None. None. There is no Christian unity without biblical truth. They go hand in hand. So it's up to us to pursue humbly and prayerfully and collectively and privately and personally the right understanding of God's word because that is what unites us in Christ. We're not united around lies. We're united around the truth. We're not united around an abstract concept of some God named Jesus. We are united in the real, historical, living person of Jesus, the God-man. We're united to the real person who taught real things that we find in Holy Scripture that has one accurate meaning to it. And that's our job. That's what we're doing. That's part of what we do when we come together as a body of believers is to study and learn God's Word together. So right living must, listen, grow out of the rich soil of right doctrine. If you didn't write that down last week, you need to write it down. Right living can only and truly grow out of truth. Right doctrine. Your theology is determining your practical living. And where you have a misunderstanding about God, about His Word, about anything that has to do with the Christian life, that's where you need to get that corrected. And I need to get that corrected. I'll give you just maybe two texts. 1 Corinthians 1.10, I'm not going to give you time to turn on this one. We'll slow down here in a minute. But 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. You see? The unity is around our thinking and around the discernment of making judgment calls. And those judgments cannot be determined by personal experience or personal preferences. The judgments must be determined by the authority of the objective Word of God. Period. The objective Word of God. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Listen to this. You don't have to turn. Just listen or jot it down if you want to go back. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, this is Paul, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Sound familiar? What is that? What kind of living is that? What does that look like? Verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, and he goes on to talk about, and we looked at this at length last week, that the, the, the context in which this kind of unity grows and flourishes is the context of right and sound doctrine. So as we go back to our text, I want you to think about this. The idea here of lifting up holy hands without this anger, without this... Um, hostility has the idea of a settled indignation. 
this is very important. It has the idea of a settled indignation against a brother, against a sister in Christ. It's settled indignation. It's very important. Because if you have siblings, how many of you grew up in a home where you had at least one brother or sister? Okay, most of you. The rest of you, I don't know. You have no hope. I don't know. I'm just kidding. But you did miss out on a lot of life experiences that tells us and teaches us how we love someone that we often get angry at and we often dispute with. But when that becomes settled, that's a character issue. That's a refusal to humble ourselves before our God. It's the attitude of one of the men in one of the parables that Jesus told. Matthew chapter 18. If you'll turn to that one. Matthew 18. And while you're turning, I want to give you just a, uh, some words, some, I mean, absolutely stunning words. As you're turning to Matthew 18 from Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Does that mean that you're a born-again, regenerated Christian, and you're in the church, and you decide that you're not going to forgive one of your brothers, so you lose your salvation? No. What he's talking about here is not the eternal security of your salvation, but the sweetness of it, the joy of it, the peace of it, and the fruitfulness of it. Now, if you want to have a wasted life, you just go on harboring a settled indignation toward a brother in Christ or a sister in Christ. Because Jesus, every time you come thinking that you're offering him some great life of dedication, he's going to say, leave it, leave it at the altar and go to your brother. So let's look at it in the parable of Matthew 18, 21, beginning in verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? I believe Peter thought that was a lot. Seven times, I mean, seven times in a row. <laughs> That's okay, but then you're going to get frustrated, right? Seven times in one day? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. And he really doesn't mean <laughs> to count them. You know, let me get out my piece of paper. You're on 76. No, it's not what he's talking about. He's saying 77 is a huge number, right? This unthinkable number of times. Therefore, verse 23, the kingdom of heaven. What are the kingdom people like? They are people, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. 
when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. That's a lot. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold and his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. And that, beloved, is a picture of what is justice for the crimes committed. He wouldn't be, he wouldn't be breaking any kind of moral or social, civil laws or virtues in doing that. Verse 26. But the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity, it's the word similar to what we call mercy for him. The master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. That's not a lot. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. His fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said, You wicked servant! I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should you not have had mercy on your fellow servants as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Two things. Number one, these forgiveness is a mark of a kingdom person. Forgiveness is a mark of grace. The work of grace in a, in a person's life, one of them is graciousness and forgiveness. And one of the main biblical reasons for this is because of what we have been forgiven by God. How can you be that way? You say that. But yet, how many of us would admit our struggle with forgiving those that hurt us deeply? And so this is a reminder. It, and secondly, second thing to take from that story Not only is it a mark of those who have been forgiven and redeemed and reconciled as a mark of the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit working on the inside to change us, to make us who were once hard to those who are now somewhat soft and softening. 
Not only is that true, but it is also and equally true that if you, from your heart, do not forgive one another within the context of a church or the broader context of the body of Christ, you have forfeited the sweetness of your own fellowship and communion with Christ. Because he loves us too much for that. How many of you are parents? I see some parents, I think. Now, if one of your children is not getting along with the other, surely you're not the kind of parent who would say, well, just go ahead and harbor that the rest of your life, son. Daughter, just go ahead and just harbor that the rest of your life, and it'll probably be okay. No, you wouldn't say that. You would say, hey, you, you come in here. You two hug each other and and, and they may not mean it at the time when they do it, but they'll eventually get <clears throat> the idea that there is a bond here that goes beyond normal bonds <clears throat> between people that <clears throat> you don't know. You know, But there is a bond in the family that is an unbreakable bond. And this, this bond is to be maintained by the willingness to overlook one another and forgive one another and continue to be patient with one another. Amen? That's what he's talking about. This settled indignation is a mark of someone that is in stark rebellion against Jesus, or it is a mark of an unregenerate person, someone that's not born again. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 31 and 32, Paul tells the church, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Guess how? As God in Christ forgave you. If you need help forgiving someone, just think about all that God has forgiven you and continues to forgive you. <laughs> Now, I know we tend to look at ourselves with rose-colored glasses, and our sins are not quite as bad as the others, but as we grow in fellowship and as we grow in the Word of God and as we grow in communion with the Holy Spirit, I will tell you a, a secret. The further and the deeper you grow in, your, in the Word of God and in your relationship with Jesus, the more you will see how sinful you really are. Listen to what James says in James chapter 1, beginning in verse 19. James chapter 1, verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. And then he gives this awesome, awesome advice. Or it's really a truth statement. For the anger of man, humanity, does not produce the righteousness of God. There are some pastors who are so filled with a zeal for, that they believe, I think, is for God and His glory that they become embittered and angry at what sometimes it seems at everyone. But your anger 
does not produce the righteousness of God. In other words, we can't expect to produce a life that is pleasing and honorable to God and helpful for others when we are acting out of humanistic anger. That's not the motive for it. And that, that hurts us deeply who are parents <laughs> because it's, it's, it's a challenge to discipline children without being overcome by anger. It's a challenge within the context of the local church to exercise godly, loving, spiritual, mature discipline within the body of the church without being sometimes motivated by anger and driven by it. We have to protect against this. This is throughout the book of Proverbs, one of the great teachings, Proverbs chapter 14, verse 29, says this, listen to this, whoever is slow to anger has great understanding. Did you catch that? Understanding is connected to being slow to anger. Truth here is connected to practical living. And in this case, slowness to anger. Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding. Listen, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. How many of you have ever acted in anger only to look back on it a few minutes or a few hours or a few days later and say, I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have done it that way. I shouldn't approach it that way. I shouldn't have said it that way. Well, that's not going to produce righteousness. You want to produce righteousness. You want to produce change. But you think your anger can do it, but it can't. Listen to Proverbs 16.32. <clears throat> Proverbs 16.32. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. Now, I want to ask you a question. When you read a statement like that, do you really believe that? You watch a movie and you see a scene, a great army and a great warrior, he's strong, he's skillful, he battles through the front line, he climbs the wall, jumps over the wall, and is the first to breach the city and maybe even to take out the main um, warrior on the other side thereby securing the victory killing the king on the enemy side and they blow the trumpet and, and everything's over and everybody looks back and there's the hero and the wind is blowing in the air and the flags in the background and the trumpets are going and you see this man as this mighty powerful person and the proverb writer says whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty he who rules his own spirit is better than someone who takes the city. A lot of times we do what we do because we don't value what God values. We're really going to get into this. We're going to see it again when we get to the women's part. I didn't write it. I'll give you just two more quickly. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 9. Another one of the wisdom genres 
of literature here in the Hebrew the Old Testament. Ecclesiastes 7, 9, he says this, Be quick in your spirit, be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. In the heart of fools. Ephesians chapter 4, as we read earlier, beginning in verse 25, Therefore, having put away all any falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. And then he says this. I remember hearing this very early on when I was a Christian by one of my co-workers. We were talking about a subject, and he, he, he quoted this. Be angry and do not sin. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. In other words, be quick to deal with it when you do have it. Be quick to deal with it when you do have it. Lifting up holy hands without anger and quarreling and an embittered spirit that you refuse to deal with. First with God in your heart in prayer and according to a get your, get your perspective realigned from God's truth and then make it right with the person if you can. And if you can't, you're free. Free as a bird in the air to go on and live a life that you can expect fruitfulness and joy from for the purpose of God's glory and the advancement of the gospel. Let's pray.